The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. We've been practicing for <clears throat> the better part of a day together. And this may be something that you do a lot of in your life, uh, whether in a formal way or in an informal way or both. Uh, or it may be something that's relatively new to you. So, new way of being, new way of relating to experience. Mm-hmm. But in, in keeping with the theme of the day, uh, I'd like to talk a little bit about clinging and non-clinging, more specifically. Uh, non-clinging as both uh, the path and fruit of the Buddhist teaching. We tend to think that uh, our state of being or a state of well-being uh, is primarily a function of what's happening to us, for us, around us. Uh, yeah, it's, this is our sort of habitual way of thinking and relating to experience is that Our happiness and unhappiness depends on things, other people, the conditions of the moment coming together in a way we like or a way we don't like. And so we spend a lot of time and energy trying to arrange the conditions to be just the way we like or as close to that as possible. We spend a lot of energy doing this, and it's not all wasted energy. I mean, it's uh, it helps. It matters what we do. We can we can improve our lives. We can improve our situation in the world uh, to some degree. But often there's something that we miss and something that the Buddha in his teachings was pointing to. And that is that often our experience of dis-ease, suffering, of unfulfillment or incompleteness or a sense that something's missing is a function of how we're relating to our experience, not the experience itself. And this is why the Buddha can talk about liberation here and now. Because if we had to arrange the conditions differently in order for liberation to be possible, it would be liberation there and then, not liberation here and now. So this is a, a pointer to a possibility. A possibility that in shifting how we relate to this moment, or this experience of the moment, I forgot what I was saying. Uh, The shifting, this relationship, let's just say it can be a very interesting exploration. Hmm? 
So I, I brought a couple of big books today, you might have noticed. I thought, it w- <laughs> I thought it would be fun to read some of the Buddha's uh, teachings, you know, and to talk about them. Uh, but some of the discourses, you know, as, as close to we know, you know, as close as we can get to maybe what the Buddha said. Um, but I'd like to start, just as a pointer, talking about the Uh, the path. I'd like to start with just reading some excerpts from the Discourse on the Four Foundations of Mindfulness, which is it's called the Satipatthana Sutta, and it's the teaching I mentioned before, out of which this whole practice uh, comes. It's really from this one teaching given by the Buddha. I'm going to read, a, I'm going to read, these are excerpts, the section on feeling and the section on uh, mind states. Now these are, this first part is uh, instructions on how to practice with uh, feeling, which is, uh, in the Buddhist teaching, sensations in the body, pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral sensations, uh, which you might think, oh, that's, why is that that interesting? Uh, but the Buddha thought it was so important, just this one aspect of experience, that uh, in his division of all of experience into four categories for the practice of mindfulness, he made feeling tone, Vedana in the Pali, one of them. So uh, there's a lot in that because so much of what we do comes out of the feeling tone of experience. Every moment of sense contact, there's a feeling tone that arises. Pleasant, unpleasant, or neither. Pleasant or unpleasant. And it's that moment of contact with pleasant, unpleasant, that gives rise to what we do next, usually. Whether it's trying to get more of the pleasant, get rid of the unpleasant, or space out in the neutral. So this is the contemplation of feeling. Uh, And how bhikkhus does a bhikkhu, bhikkhu means monk, but it can mean you in this context. Does a bhikkhu contemplate feelings as feelings? Here, when a pleasant feeling, when feeling a pleasant feeling, a bhikkhu understands I feel a pleasant feeling. When feeling a painful feeling, she understands, I feel a painful feeling. When feeling a neither pleasant nor painful feeling, he understands, I feel a neither pleasant nor painful feeling. When feeling, anyway, let's stop there. Very simple. There's no pointing to what you should be experiencing. It should be pleasant. It should be unpleasant. No. It's when painful feeling arises, we know it as it is. This is a painful feeling. When a pleasant feeling arises, we know it in the moment. This is a pleasant feeling. When a feeling that's neither pleasant nor unpleasant arises, we know it moment, though this is neither pleasant nor unpleasant. This is a real pointer on how to practice. So our life in this human realm is a series of moments of feeling, if you look at it in one dimension. And we'll get a a healthy dose of all three. Maybe we wish we had a healthier dose of one of them and a less healthy dose of another. But for paying attention, we get all three. And the instruction is rather than reacting to it or pushing it away or grabbing on, just to be aware of it, to watch it come and watch it go. Or watch it come and watch it stay for a while. Now I'll read the section on mind. And how bhikkhus does a bhikkhu contemplate 
abide contemplating mind as mind. Here Bhikkhu understands mind affected by lust as mind affected by lust and mind unaffected by lust as mind unaffected by lust. He understands mind affected by hate as mind affected by hate and mind unaffected by hate as mind unaffected by hate. She understands mind affected by delusion as mind affected by delusion and mind unaffected by delusion as mind unaffected by delusion. He understands contracted mind as contracted mind and distracted mind as distracted mind. She understands exalted mind as exalted mind and unexalted mind as unexalted mind. He understands surpassed mind as surpassed mind and unsurpassed mind as unsurpassed mind. She understands concentrated mind as concentrated mind and unconcentrated mind as unconcentrated mind. He understands liberated mind as liberated mind and unliberated mind as unliberated mind. So that's interesting. Understanding a distracted mind as a distracted mind. I bet you didn't think that was in there. Our habit, and this is a habit we even bring into meditation, is that we think we're supposed to make it a certain way. And this is a lot of the energy that we expend when we're practicing. It's sort of just based on a false idea we hold, that we're supposed to create some experience, a better experience, a more free experience, a more liberated experience a more concentrated experience, a more mindful experience. But the teaching here is very clear. The practice, the way of practice, is to be attending to what is arising. When it's a mind affected by lust, it's a mind affected by lust. And when it's a mind unaffected by lust, it's a mind unaffected by lust. When it's a mind affected by hate, it's a mind affected by hate. You know, sometimes with our little spiritual ideas, we think, oh, I'm not supposed to feel hate. You know, if I'm being a good Buddhist, I'm probably feeling kindness towards all beings most of the time. (laughs) You know, or I'm not supposed to lust, that's bad, that's sort of craving, right? So I'm not supposed to feel that. Go back to my breathing. (laughs) But these are part of human experience. And the idea, the practice, is to meet them. To know the condition of the moment and be mindful of that. Watching it move and change, increase or decrease, without an agenda. You know, we're not watch, being with it in order for it to end. You know, that's a kind of holding out. So this <clears throat> way, let's call it a way, that's a way of, of sort of the opposite of clinging. Yeah. When we're clinging, we're trying to make things a certain way or keep them a certain way. Or we're identifying with the condition of the moment as me. I, me, or mine. Yeah, that's clinging. I'm such a lustful person, I'll never be able to meditate. Or I'm such a hateful person, you know, I'm just a... Nobody wants to be around me. And even if they did, I'd hate them more for it. (laughs) You know, I just... This identifying with a condition of the moment as me, that's clinging. Clinging to something as I, me, or mine. And it has a, you can kind of feel the difference. When you're just aware of a state being present, oh, the mind is distracted. And you're just aware of what the distracted mind is 
oh, this is what distract is like. And when you're identifying with it as me, I'm a scattered person. We can notice this difference. But in practicing in this way that is being pointed to here in the teaching, we're practicing this way of, of non-clinging, yeah? of not identifying with the condition of the moment without personalizing it, without creating a big story about it. In a way, we're practicing seeing nature as nature. And you are nature. We forget this. We really get far away from this. You know, we look out and you know, go into the woods or the mountains, that's nature. But this, this is me, and it's a problem to be fixed. And then there's a big road ahead, all the fixing that I need to do. And we can all, when we get into that mindset, we can all have a long road and a lot of things that need fixing. And then liberation is far from here and now. <laughs> liberation is, you know, I, I think I can see it with a telescope in a future lifetime. So, you know, when it comes to nature, we recognize that there's a, a wide variety of conditions in nature. The conditions are always changing, weather, what have you. We sort of take that as natural. Maybe with climate change, you're thinking about it differently. <laughs> but still, we... But we have a lot of preferences around what arises in our body and mind. And we tend to not see it as nature, we tend to see it as me. And one of the valuable things, very valuable about sitting with yourself for an extended period of time is you start to see, wow, what a shifting set of conditions am I? All of the human emotions are experienced. Some of them you may deny and not be used to sort of acknowledging, but they're there. Sorry. And they're moving, and they're in flux, and that's due to conditions. They're rising due to conditions. When we start to see this in a first-hand way, when we start to see our body and mind as an unfolding uh, series of conditions, ever-changing, we stop identifying so much with any one condition as me. We stop clinging to the condition of the moment, either as my salvation or my damnation. We start to see that actually this flow of conditions, is, it's unstoppable and it's also ungovernable. It's selfless in that way. We're not controlling, we're not actually in control of what arises in the body and mind in the next moment. Are you determining what thought you have next? If you were, you'd probably determine a lot of different things than what you're getting. You know, you'd write different content. 
I would definitely write different content for myself if I was the script writer for this mind. Yeah. But in a way, the content is only a problem when we're identified with it. When it means something about who we are. When there's a story around it about me and what this means about me. When we're not seeing it as an impermanent condition, one that arises and passes and changes. Even if it arises a lot, yeah, it may be conditioned over a time to arise frequently. But as we were talking about earlier with anger, when we can be with anger in a balanced way, not wrapped up in the story about what it means about that I'm angry, it means that I'm an angry person, it means that I'm a rageaholic. When we can just be with the state of anger as it's unfolding in a balanced way to metabolize it, to use this energy, there can be a, quite an equipoise, quite a balance of mind with even that. And when we see it as a natural condition, not as an idea, but as a felt experience. And the difference is we're not identified with it. Similarly with fear, Similarly with, you know, choose your state. So clinging comes from delusion. You know, it's the delusion of thinking that happiness, lasting peace and happiness lies in. I'm going to just identify myself with the best condition and I'm going to keep it that way. Or the delusion that happiness lies in getting rid of these feelings I don't like. As soon as I get rid of these feelings, this rage or this anger or this resentment, as soon as I get rid of them, then I'll be really great. But the path of practice is the path of balance with whatever's arising in the body and mind. And that's a process, yeah? becoming friendly with our own experience. And there may be things in you that you think, I do not want to become friendly with that. But at a certain point you might realize that might be your only choice. You're paying attention. You know, because waging war on yourself, it doesn't work. And it just makes you less happy. You know, so that's insight. So it's useful to notice this. It's sort of like we're talking about inner and outer in a way. You know, we think that our experience at the moment is dependent on the object we're experiencing. But it's not, it's dependent on what we're doing with what's arising in us. You know, pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. They're not out there. They're arising in you. They're feelings. They're not connected to objects in some ultimate way. You may see a person and have a, that you know, and have a really unpleasant feeling. Somebody else may see that person and have, be overjoyed. You know, so the, the pleasant and unpleasant is not located in the person. It's located in you. So then it's your task, well, how do I be with that? What do I do with that? In a way, that's very empowering. You know, it's empowering that all of these moods and emotions, all these fears and anger, it's empowering that they're located in us. Because that gives us some hope, some chance that we could actually do something about our experience of them. If they were really located out there, things out there were inherently, you know, could 
inherently cause suffering, it'd be a, there'd be a lot less we could do, you know. If that family member of yours was, you know, they are inherently the cause of suffering, <laughs> that'd be tough. It may feel that way. You know, that person is inherently the cause of suffering. But when we realize that all of our experience is arising for us, it, it, is, it may feel daunting at first, but it's actually, over time, it can be very empowering. I'm just going to riff a little bit then about kind of different kinds of clinging and where clinging comes from and just see where it goes. You know, so the Buddha talked about four kinds of clinging. You know, clinging to sense experience, sense pleasure, uh, clinging to views, uh, <laughs> and sense pleasures, views. What's the next one? Uh, doctrines of self is the last one. Uh, rites and rituals. Thank you. Yeah, rites, clinging to rites and rituals. So the sense experience one we're familiar with. Yeah? We are experienced junkies and we like our certain kinds of experience. We spend a lot of energy trying to get certain experiences and to hold on to those, get as many of the good ones as we can. I already talked about this. Clinging to views is sometimes more subtle, and sometimes it's really unsubtle. You know, you've spent any time in the political realm and you see a lot of clinging to views. Yeah, views and opinions. And wow, you know, it's, it's very, very powerful. We have all kinds of views about ourselves as well that we cling to. And we often forget, because we don't see a view as a mental event that arises, it's just, it's a view. But we often don't see a view as a view. We see it as the way things are. We all really like the feeling of being right. Doesn't that just feel good? I'm right, and I know I'm right. So, you know, wars can start from clinging to view. It's also very easy to reduce a person into a non-person through clinging to a view. Uh, It's useful to point out that this is an area we can bring into our awareness. It's even just an interesting inquiry. It's like, what of all these things that I take to be true is a view, and what do I really know? A lot of it is views and opinions. A lot of it. You know, and sometimes when I, I was thinking about this earlier and what came to me was a line from the movie The Big Lebowski. Anybody like that movie? Know that movie? Where the dude... Has, have a lot of people seen that movie? Yeah. Where the dude says to Lebowski, he says... That's just like your opinion, man. You know? <laughs> so I, you can say that to yourself. You know, that's just like your opinion, man. Yeah. Anyway, this is an area to pay attention to. <laughs> uh, you know, when we're not holding a view, a view of ourself a view of, it's interesting to even explore, what is that? We're not holding some view about, about the future, about the past, even a view about this moment. Not holding some idea, preconceived idea in our mind. Just notice for a moment what that's like, just in this moment. Without a preconception, without a filter, even just like look around. It's very fresh, isn't it? 
sense of like energy and possibility and ooh, spaciousness. I'm just describing my experience in the moment. Isn't it? It's interesting to play with this with family members or people you think you really know. You hold a lot of views about them. It's just interesting in the moment to be so like without kind of letting go of those views for a moment, just experiencing in a fresh way. I want to read something else. This is from the Sutta Nipata, one of the earliest recorded teachings of the Buddha. I'm just going to read this last line. An accomplished person does not by a philosophical view or by thinking become arrogant, for he is not of that sort. Not by holy works nor by tradition is he led. This is the rites and rituals part. I'll talk about that later. He is not led into any of the resting places of the mind. So, can you feel that? This, when we're identifying with experience in the moment, as me, when we're fixing experience, it's like there's a resting place. The mind is resting on something. We're anchoring our identity in some phenomena in the body and mind. And it's just interesting to even play with for a moment what it's like to not be anchoring our identity in anything, in an idea, a view, an opinion. For one who is free from views, there are no ties. For one who is delivered by understanding, there are no follies. But one who grasps, but those who grasp after views and philosophical opinions, they wander about in the world, annoying people. (laughs) Sense of humor. It's in there. And I mean, that's the translation. It's a good translation. <laughs> so I just add a little lightness to it, but um, you know, you can't really have a conversation when someone's holding to a view. And there's a difference between having views, which is one thing, and clinging to views. And you can feel the difference. People who have views, you can talk to. <laughs> you can have a conversation even if you differ in your view. But when there's a clinging and an identification with the view, it's very hard to have a conversation. There's not really a conversation happening. It's not an openness. So it's not that views are bad. We all have views. It's the clinging which is where the suffering lies. It's not the experiences that are arising for you, in you, to you, where suffering is located. Suffering arises due to the clinging and identifying with the experience. And since we're reading all of these, and if, sometimes it's nice to read the, the traditional texts. You know, fun. Even though the language might sound kind of arcane, you know, it's repetitive because it's from oral tradition. So it was done in a repetitive way so people could remember it. You know? If you didn't have the internet and you didn't have note-taking, you'd have to remember stuff. People used to have great memories. And they also used to know how to f- frame things in a way that were easier to remember. So that's why there's a lot of repetition and repetitive language. There's a purpose to it. So this is a wonderful series of questions and answers uh, between... Uh, this bhikkhuni, this nun, Dhammadina, who was known as the foremost of the Buddha's uh, bhikkhuni disciples in expounding the Dharma, and, um, and a layman who I think was a, I can't remember what he did, his name is Visaka, uh, and he also happened to be, uh, he had been her husband before she ordained. So she's an arhant, fully awakened, and he's pretty far along, but not quite where she is. So he's asking her this series of questions and answers. Just a nice little uh, thing. So 
So she's talking about how the sense of personal, of sort of being a limited, the sense of being a limited personality arises from identifying with the five aggregates, which is just another way of categorizing all of our experience. You know, form, feeling, perception, mental formations, and consciousness. So, sometimes called the five clinging aggregates, or the five aggregates affected by clinging. So, uh, Visaka asks her, Lady, is that clinging, she's been talking about clinging in the aggregates, is that clinging the same as these five aggregates affected by clinging? Or is the clinging something apart from the five aggregates affected by clinging? And she replies, friend Visaka, that clinging is neither the same as these five aggregates affected by clinging, nor is clinging something apart from the five aggregates affected by clinging. It is the desire and lust in regard to the five aggregates affected by clinging that is the clinging there. I think that's a very important point. As she's saying that it's not the conditions of the world that are the cause of suffering. It's our clinging to the conditions of the world, or the, in this case, the five aggregates, everything that composes our body and mind. In other words, it's our relationship to it which determines the suffering or happiness. So, you know, sometimes what we do when we hear these kinds of teachings is that we think, okay, clinging is bad, so I'm not going to cling. It's a natural move. It's a reasonable move. I just won't cling. And then you get a lot of people walking around, (laughs) meditators, expert meditators, who are trying not to cling. And it's kind of a weird state, you know, where you're sort of you're held back and not wanting to get that involved in stuff. There's actually a lot of clinging in that. Can you feel it? <laughs> like, yeah. So it's like, oh, I shouldn't. And then you get a lot of truncated lives. Kind of. But the way we learn about clinging, you know, in order to be released from something, you have to know about it. You know, in order to escape from prison, you have to really know the, the pattern of the guards, you know, when they chain shifts, you know, you have to get to know the walls and where there's maybe a place that, you gotta know the place. So how are we gonna get free from clinging by not clinging, by trying not to cling. No. The way you get free from clinging is experiencing your own clinging. Yeah? You're grasping, you're identifying. We're doing it all the time. So rather than holding yourself, trying to hold yourself in some disassociated state of removal from the world so that you're not clinging, because the Buddha said it was bad. The Buddha never said it was bad, but sometimes we hear it that way. The path is really to what? Be here now, right? Be here for this moment as it's unfolding. When there's clinging present, we know the mind that's clinging. When there's not clinging present, we know the mind that's not clinging. There is suffering inherent in that very move of grasping. It doesn't feel good, you know? You know it in a moment. You're having a wonderful time with somebody, and then you have the thought, I don't want this to end. And then, you know, and we start clinging to the moment, and then all of a sudden, we're not there anymore in a full way. So it's not to stop that from happening. But as we can experience the mind of clinging and the mind of not clinging, 
as we can engage in life, contact with living as we've been practicing today, and notice the difference between that movement and to feel the burn of it. Feel the non-happiness in the clinging. We can only feel that in the moment. Our natural intelligence, when we really feel that burn of grasping, our natural intelligence starts to move towards not allowing us to invest so much in it. Because we see, even if at first we just see it in a vague way, that that is dis-ease. You know, that it's limited. That there's an experiential suffering in it. Actually, in identifying with anything as me or mine, even good things, even pleasant things, because those things change, and then where are you? Looking for the best resting place of the mind, as opposed to, as I read earlier, not being led into any of the resting places of the mind. So this is where this is a path of living. Yeah? It's a path of experience, and it's a path of awareness. Not of trying to make certain things happen and not happen. This is such a big thing in meditation. It's so deeply ingrained, this attempt to make something else happen, to just tweak it so that I get to liberation, which is somewhere other than here. But liberation is here and now in a moment of non-clinging, in a moment of not anchoring identity. It's here and available right here. And we experience this, you know, to varying degrees at varying times. We experience some degree of not clinging, of not identifying. Um, And usually then there's a sense of expand, uh, kind of expandedness, you know. Maybe you're doing something and you sort of forget yourself for a while, you know, or you're in a beautiful place and you just feel a sense of expandedness. Yeah. Or you're in a new situation where you don't really care what happens. You're around strangers or something and there's just a kind of an openness. This is a non-clinging, non-identifying. You don't care what you say because you kind of don't care what they think. <laughs> You know, uh, I remember having this experience very vividly when I was in college, and I would go visit people, friends of mine at their college, like at a different place, and I'd go to class or whatever, or I'd be hanging out, and I was this great, engaging guy. You know, I could talk to anybody, and I could talk and class. It was just very free because nobody knew me, so I didn't care. But when I was where I went to school. I was much more conscious of what I said in class and, you know, and a lot of stor- more stories about... This is just an interesting and a very mundane example. It's identified. Oh, what I say is going to be with me for a while. That'll be mine. That's what I said. You know, I can't get away from it. So I hope you come away from this also with, with a couple of things. One is more of a little bit of a sense of this mechanism of clinging and of feeling it in your life, like allowing yourself to feel that, even as you're meditating, that leaning forward or whatever it is. And also a sense that the path is your life unfolding. Whatever happens to be happening, that's the path. The path is not somewhere else that you should get to. It's this, these conditions unfolding. Because in order for the path, because the path is not dependent on what the conditions are. 
So your life is perfect. It's the perfect set of conditions to get you free. You know? But if you're always looking for some other path, you won't be on it. You'll be in some weird limbo. Not anywhere. So it's a beautiful relief when you realize, oh, even just in sitting meditation, the path is what's arising. You know, as my first teacher, one of my mentors, used to say, your life is the curriculum, but are you going to sign up for the course? So we, we can, and it's through this knowing of our own experience that we naturally start to get freer. We learn about impermanence from being with the impermanent nature of life. When we're not present for it, we don't learn anything. Impermanence is all around us, but because we don't know it in our experience, we actually think that these states that arise, they feel really permanent. Uh, similarly with the process of identifying with experience uh, or grasping onto experience, uh, we actually think that leads to happiness. That's why we invest in it. So it's through paying attention in a moment-to-moment way that we can really start to see, no, this is the, this grasping, this trying to make it a certain way, this getting to the next best version of me, you know, this, that, that is actually moving us in the wrong direction. That there's a dis-ease inherent in that craving, that searching. And we start to settle back into this moment. Into being here for this. Resting in... uh, the nature of our own mind, which is not determined, not dependent on anything. And in not resting our mind on conditioned experience, and not anchoring our identity or our sense of security in any one thing, we start to let go into a, uh, a kind of rest, a resting in this sort of not abiding anywhere, which is, it's a resting we can't fall out of. It's a resting that's not dependent on what happens to be arising. And it's something that's, that's here and now. So this is from the Kosala Sutta, from the Anguttara Nikaya. There are some priests and contemplatives who proclaim the foremost unbinding in the here and now. Now of those who proclaim the foremost unbinding in the here and now, this is supreme, liberation through non-clinging. Having known, as they actually are present, the arising, the passing away, the allure, the drawbacks of, and the escape from the sixth sense contact media. And what I teach, and when I teach that, when I point that out, some priests and contemplatives accuse me of being false, unfactual, hollow, vain, saying, Gotama the contemplative does not declare the full comprehension of forms does not declare the full comprehension of feelings, but I do declare the full comprehension of sensuality. I do declare the full comprehension of forms. I do declare the full comprehension of feelings, unhungering, unbound, cooled in the here and now. I declare total unbinding through non-clinging.
is through contact with experience that we learn about experience. It's through contact with feelings that we learn about feelings, about their nature. It's through contact with moods and emotions that we learn about moods and emotions. It's through contact with the mind, mind states, thoughts, mental events, that we learn about the mind. It's through seeing clinging that we learn about clinging. Let's just sit for a few moments. <laughs> 